When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City soccer so great. Longtime player Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. In 2022, less than 3% of North Carolina workers belong to a union. Only South Carolina had a smaller percentage. Still, in Asheville, food and beverage workers are organizing and seeing momentum. The community in Asheville, the food and bev community, has really become so united and we have developed a sense of pride in what we do. And it's more of, yeah, we are F&B people. We are industry workers. We are a unique community, and we deserve dignity and respect because we like what we do. That's why we do it. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. My guests today are Jen Hampton, who worked 31 years in the service industry and is now chair of Asheville Food and Beverage United, and Ariana Lingenfeld, a chef at Green Sage South Asheville, who this past March led a successful effort to unionize that staff. We're going to talk about their separate paths toward getting involved with organizing, overcoming anti-union propaganda and confronting employment systems they say are designed to divide workers. We also dig into the industry-specific issues they're fighting for beyond higher salaries. Hey, Overlook audience, did you know that every month I produce more than 400 minutes of exclusive local content relevant to life in Asheville? The Overlook is a one-man band, well, along with the fantastic, generous guests I invite onto the show, but my point is I'm delivering something Asheville has never had before. If you value The Overlook, if it makes you a more informed and engaged citizen, consider joining my Patreon campaign. You can be a sustaining member for as little as five $5 a month. Your support would mean the world to me. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash the Overlook Podcast. Jen Hampton spent 17 years in Asheville's food and beverage industry, the last seven at Ben's Tune-Up. I began our conversation by asking what inspired her to play an active role in organizing. During the pandemic, we suddenly didn't have to go to work every day, and I started getting on Facebook, which I hadn't really done before much, and discovered the Asheville F&B Tribe Facebook group, 
where it's just a bunch of food and beverage workers in this community talking about our issues, our experiences in food service. And that's when I really discovered that all of the issues that I had been facing as a lifetime industry worker were not just individually like my fault, that they were systemic, that everybody was dealing with the same issues of low wages, lots of hours and working really hard and not getting paid adequately for it and having to rely on the generosity of customers if you work front of the house, which is serving and bartending and whatnot. So anyways, we started talking about it and Bernie Sanders' campaign really opened my eyes to the fact that this is how the system is set up, that it's not a bug, it's a feature. And somebody posted in the F&B tribe, if you want to talk about organizing the restaurant industry in Nashville, come and meet at the grind. And so we did. And there was union reps there. There was other organizers. And we all just started sharing our experiences. And when I realized that we were all dealing with the same thing, it really made me mad. It's interesting to me that you worked all these years in the industry and that it took the pandemic and social media relatively recently for you to understand that this was a pervasive issue. Why was this not talked about previously? Food and service industry workers bounce around a lot, right? People come and go and there's, especially in a town like Asheville, you probably get to know people really quick. Why do you think it took the pandemic and the F&B tribe page off of that for this to really germinate for you in a bigger way? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've thought about that a lot. And I think it's because of how hard we have to work and, you know, how stressful it is. And we're always just in survival mode. And so you don't really have time when you're just having to survive and scrape by to think about your circumstances or even to consider that other people are dealing with the same thing because you're just so focused on getting through the day and making ends meet that you just you can't consider it. You mentioned something a moment ago that was baked into the system. And along with wages, there's a lot of other things like hours that you work, benefits, health care, things like that. Is this what you're talking about is being all of this baked into the system? And please elaborate a little bit on, and this is my word, not yours, the repressive element of this system that you worked in? Yeah, it's always been a stigmatized job, like a people consider it a job of last resort. If you don't have an education, if you don't have experience in other kinds of work, at least you can get a job in food service. And there's always been a lot of people willing to take that job because it's easy to get that we didn't really have a place to stand up and say, hey, this ain't right. We're, we deserve better. We work hard and we deserve to be have the dignity and respect of things like paid time off, like you were talking about benefits. So we always go to work sick. And that's just always been just the norm until the pandemic, when we realized how much of a problem that really is. Having to go to work with the flu, I had to go back to work, and I'm sure I was still contagious with COVID. I got it twice at work because of the same thing, because we have no choice. What are we supposed to do? We don't get paid time off, so you risk losing a whole paycheck if you take any time off. I want to come back to a couple of things you brought up, but Ariana, you have worked for Green Stage for two years, you said, and so you came on during the pandemic. Talk about just... What brought you to work at Green Sage? I entered the workforce in January of 2021, so it was right after COVID, and that I was 19, so it was my first job ever, and I was experiencing working in food and beverage 
during the COVID times. And that was, I think, a big deal because at the time we were being called, what was it? Essential workers, yeah. But we weren't being treated that way. Like, we were being exposed to COVID on a daily basis. I worked at a grocery store, Delhi, so we were there every day. If you had COVID, they let you work. If you didn't, it was a lot. So you were at Ingalls Markets, Mm -hmm. and they asked you to work knowing you had COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you were... If you had symptoms of COVID, they would not ask you to step off the job until you got a positive test. So if you showed up that day with symptoms, they wouldn't ask you to go home and you could work the full shift. And in some cases, people worked days before they were asked to finally go get a test. And so that would cause outbreaks all over the store. Talk about the conversations that must have been happening with you and your colleagues. And you're young. It's your first job. You probably felt this is the norm. What can I say? What can I do? Talk about the conversations you and your colleagues had there. I think it would be safe to say we immediately knew it wasn't the norm and it shouldn't be the norm. And we fought for that. And we had those conversations early on about why are they still working here? Why don't they go take a test? We have, we were a grocery store. We had tests in the store that they could go and take and then see if they need to leave or not. There were just so many, like me as a 19 year old working there, realizing I came up with three different options before my managers even tried anything at all. made us realize that we cared more about our job and our conditions than our higher-ups did, our managers, our owners. So you left Ingalls for Green Sage? For Green Sage, yes. And tell me, why did you do that? Management entirely, just how they kept mishandling everything during COVID and after, and even trying to get people hours and just giving enough thought to people's schedules about how to rearrange everything correctly. And just there was a, just a lack of care. And so I went to Green Sage instead. Obviously, it's a much smaller operation, completely different kind of operation. Mm-hmm. So you became a cook, chef at Green Sage. What was it like for you still during the pandemic? What was the situation like for you when you started there? I went to Green Sage hoping it'd be a little bit more organized since it was smaller. They'd have their stuff together a little bit more. And then when I went in, it was November of 2021. And so Christmas season was coming and we knew that there was a higher risk of us getting COVID as well, especially with it being a tourist season and tourists coming with COVID. And we did all end up getting COVID. I want to be clear here. You said everyone at the store got COVID? Everyone at the store got COVID two different times. Yeah, six months apart. So that December for Christmas and then later on in June, we all got COVID again. And which, I want to be clear, which Green Sage were you at? I'm at Green Sage South. Okay. So what would your managers and bosses say? Obviously, if it's affecting the entire staff, literally, there must have been conversations. We can't stay open. Tell me what those conversations with your bosses and managers were like. So the first time, so during that Christmas, all of my coworkers got COVID. I was maybe three weeks in. They really didn't have any sort of training program, so I'm trying to learn how to be a line cook. Fresh baby, haven't cooked ever on a line before, and they just threw me on by myself without training. All my coworkers had were out, and they just said, figure it out. So we've laid the landscape for both of you in terms of the dissatisfaction that you felt at the time. So Jen, you mentioned how the conversation around the the, the F&B tribe on Facebook got you to understand that this is a pervasive issue. Was there any 
sense or talk of organizing before that? And if not, talk about how that even germinated. We started talking about it as a group when we started meeting and talking about organizing. You met in person? In person, yeah. We met in person outside, masked up and everything, and started talking about it. And we didn't really know what our rights were, if we were even legally allowed to organize So we started seeking out people who had that knowledge, people who work in the legal system, for example, and other organizers, and attending trainings and workshops just to learn about it and how to organize and how to have conversations with people. And so I just started canvassing. I just started going out and going into businesses and talking to workers and being like, hey, we're trying to organize food and bev workers for living wages and better schedules and paid time off for sick days. And at first it was just like people like, yeah, okay, that's weird. And I just started sharing things on the tribe, like memes and Twitter comments and stuff like that from Bernie Sanders and Nina Turner and whoever would just be posting things and starting the conversations that way. Talk about the reactions you got initially. You said at first, oh, that, some people were like, oh, that's weird. Was there hesitancy? Was there skepticism more so than there was like right on? Yeah, there was a lot of hesitancy and skepticism because I was just one person going in and talking to people about this. And I think that what my sense is that people were afraid because for one thing, I heard a lot of it's illegal to unionize in North Carolina, which it's absolutely not. And though you can be fired for any reason, no reason or good reason, you cannot be fired if you are participating in a union related activity with at least one other person. You cannot be fired for that. But just the talk of a union before you become a union, can you be let go for that reason? No, you cannot. And it's federally considered union activity, even if you're not in a formal union yet. If you're doing something that you're trying to advocate for better working conditions, something like that with at least one other person that's considered legally under federal law union activity. You know, it's a larger cultural issue of how people view employers, that they are all powerful and you as the employee are thankful for the job. You are grateful for the opportunity to work for this employer and you should not do anything to mess that up. I imagine, Jen, that's part of that. There's a a culture of thought and belief in this. There is. That's something else that also drastically changed due to the pandemic because a lot of people died in this industry. I know of at least two people who passed away that I worked with and a lot of people left the industry during the pandemic. Suddenly we had more power because there were not like tons of people waiting to take our jobs. So the tables turned where the employers needed to be grateful that we were there. I have to ask you, how did you muster the courage while you still were working at Ben's Tune-Up, that this was something, not only did this need to happen, but you put your neck out to marshal this happened. What do you attribute that to? I definitely attribute that to realizing that so many other people were suffering under these conditions. And I've always been a person that I may not always fight for myself, but when I see somebody else suffering, it really fires me up and makes me want to do something about it to help. So Ariana, you were work you were talking about a very specific and working in a very specific environment, Green Sage, small amount of workers. How did and when did the talk of organizing even germinate there? 
So when I started, we had one manager, and he was a very good manager, and we were all very happy with our job because of how he managed. So at first, we weren't really worried about organizing or anything like that because we were happy where we were at, f- at first. And then after getting COVID twice, last year, I think the thing that finally did it, like after watching all these things and experiencing all these things on the job, um, the water crisis happened in Asheville. So how did the water crisis affect your conditions and the talks around what was happening? From what I understand, the water crisis mostly affected South Asheville, and that is where Green Sage South is. And we did not have water, and we were still asked to go in the store and open for four days in a row without having water. So that meant that as a coffee shop, our coffee machines would not work, our espresso machines, our dishwasher wouldn't work. So we had no sanitary water to clean and cook with, but we were still being asked to go and open the store. And that's what started it. This was only your second job. You start, you have, your first job is Ingalls, where you saw what was happening around your managers, according to you, were just indifferent. And not only indifferent, but, but be damned, we're going to keep working regardless of the conditions. And then you see this happening at Green Sage under a, another crisis, the water crisis happening, and that they, we're going to continue doing what we're doing. Tell me your reactions to this. Were all of you giving each other like the eye, like what is going on here? We had just gotten a brand new GM, and so this is maybe her third week, and this is happening. And she was coming in the store, and I had been there for a while now, so she was asking me, like, what are the normal procedures for closing the store? She was like, I really think we should close the store. And so she's trying to contact the owner, who is Randy Talley, and he told her that he is the only person that's allowed to shut the store down and that we would not be doing that because no one had water and so everyone was going out to eat and they would make more money if we stayed open. And me and her were the ones that had the first big conversation about it. So to be clear on this, you're saying, at least from your hearing of it, the owner said people who live here don't have water, so they're going to be going out to eat and that's why we're staying open. Yes. Okay. So we haven't talked about the organizing part. So you're seeing this happen around you. Talk about what happened to organize and collectively get your ire together to even begin to think about organizing. So I think through that process, going through the store's motions of what you're supposed to do in a crisis. So if we contacted the right people, we did the right things, we contacted the health department, but our owner was still telling us something that we felt was morally and at a health risk wise also just wrong and so we started looking into different systems that could do something about it so did you take a leadership role in this yes yeah i'm the union head wow so you're you're young it's your second job i don't know what your background was like did you have parents who were helped imbue you a sense of what's right and wrong and, and to fight for yourself tell me how did you develop the wherewithal to say we're just not going to take this. We're going to, to look into organizing. My dad and my mom, actually, both of them were in food and beverage my whole life. My dad mainly my whole life. And he raised me uh, in kitchens. And I got to see what those environments were like from, I would say, probably 2011 onward. So I got to see the 2008 crisis and how that was handled throughout the whole country and how that affected people. And then seeing COVID happen and just seeing those systems continue to fail us and then moving into adulthood and realizing like I have to do something about it I can't just stand here and just watch it happen because I know it's wrong and I've seen it my whole life be wrong and I would at least like to fight 
Jen said she initially met skepticism, misconceptions about what workers could do and couldn't do. What did you meet when you, in terms of your coworkers' reactions when you started talking with them about this? Our group was very interested in the idea of you saying, so that was good. But for skepticism, I got a lot of restaurant jobs and food industry jobs or just teenager jobs. They're not meant to make a living on. That was a big thing we heard a lot of. And that's something you alluded to, Jen, also that that some people have this feeling and maybe a, a lot of workers go into it thinking it's a stepping stone while I'm in school or, or you know, doing going to lead to something else. Do you think that is part of the challenge both of you face in this industry is that even from within a lot of people don't see it as a career so much as a stepping stone and why stick your necks out if, hey, I'm just going to suck it up. I'm going to be working this for a year or two and then I'll be out of here onto something bigger. Do you think that's part of the challenge? I think that historically, yes, it has been part of the challenge, but the community in Asheville, the food and bev community has really become so united and we have developed a sense of pride in what we do. And I don't see that feeling anymore. It's more of, yeah, we are F&B people. We are industry workers. We are a unique community. And we deserve dignity and respect because we like what we do. That's why we do it. More after this. It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. Do you think some of this has to do, and some of what you're talking about, stems from seeing how tourism has mushroomed here? And people see the money that floods in. And when you talk about industry, historically, we think of, oh, it's the restaurants industry or the, gro- the the workers industry, it's the owner's industry. And you're, what you're saying, Jen, is that the workers started seeing themselves as not only a valuable component of it, but an invested component of it and not looking at it as short term. Do you think that is part of this evolution? Absolutely. And now when I go out talking to people, I hear a whole lot more of that. Like I start here, I've started hearing people say what I've been saying is, 
the tourism industry would not be able to survive without us. They come here for the service that we provide, not what the owners provide, because we saw a lot of them try to work our jobs during the pandemic, and it wasn't pretty. So we understand our value and that it is our labor that supports tourism. So Jen, talk about when you started seeing traction. You mentioned the challenges you were having initially with certain misconceptions that people had and misgivings. Where did you gain traction? That is a definite point that I know we, so when we first launched last May Day, we had 50 people signed up for our email list. And then I started canvassing really hard and talking about the issues we were fighting for and discovered that the most widely and deeply felt issue in that moment was the cost and safety concerns around parking for workers downtown. So I decided to start a petition to lobby our city and county government to do something about it to provide some sort of reduced parking for us. And that just blew up. And people were really riled up about that. And we got 2,300 signatures. And long story short, the county passed a new parking program for downtown workers, providing a $40 monthly pass. And when we got that win, people, that really just propelled us. And it gave everybody involved in the community a sense of pride. Wow, we actually got together and did something and made a difference. What else can we do? Ariana, talk about where you started seeing traction. You're a small shop. And I imagine on one level, organizing could have happened in one conversation. You just decide, let's gather everybody at somebody's apartment and let's have a talk. When did you start or how did you start seeing, oh, yes, this is something we can do. Pretty much during the water crisis, we said right after that happened, we were like, let's get together and just talk about it. Our manager at the time had a big, she had a good idea of having talks together, almost like not therapy sessions, but just being able to just bitch together and talk about what issues we had and trying to see if we could do something about it and put our heads together and figure something out and start to make some kind of leverage or leeway in the store. Did it ever occur to you or was there ever a point of conversation among your coworkers? We're too small to do this. What is What would a union even look like when we have 10 employees tops? That's what everyone told us, but we had, I think, 12 tops at the time when it happened, and I believe eight of us were already on board pretty much from the get-go, so we knew we could do it. And so I imagine gathering everybody wouldn't be a huge challenge. I imagine also the owner of Green Sage probably, you don't want to just talk about this openly, even though you legally can talk about organizing. It's not something you want to do right in their face during work hours. So when the owner of Green Sage did catch wind of this, hear about this, what was the feedback and reaction? So we decided after we had, I think, 10 people officially signed union cards. And so we were making leeway, making huge leeway. And so we decided before we officially put the cards in and asked for an election, let's see if he will accept us as a union because of his brand, because of Green Sage and things that they are for. And because the owner is a huge Asheville man, we thought maybe he would just take us. And that was not the case at all. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you try to bring in uh, workers from the other Green Sage outlets as well? Or was it just all the time solely focused on South Asheville? We started with South and we did try to bring in other stores, but they immediately got union busted. What do you mean they got union busted? And why didn't that happen to your shop? It did happen to our store, 
but we had our knowledge, we knew our facts, we knew what rights we had. And so typically what union busting is it sounds really dramatic, but it could be as simple as your boss going up to you and just asking you some really weird questions about the union. So they would ask us questions like, how much are your union dues going to be? We've heard they're $400 a month and just total misinformation. But if enough people hear that and they don't know the facts, they will just stop trying at all. So you're saying union busting happens through a certain propaganda campaign rather than something overt, like we're going to fight you. It's just more like an undermining. Pretty much. So how did you combat that? If union busting was happening at the other shops, how did you combat that at South Asheville? So going into unionizing, I immediately did all the research that I could, and I just ingested everything, and we had been talking to Jen at that point and with some other union reps, and so I got as much information as I could, and I made sure to distribute that to people at South as fast as possible so that they would have security and knowing that they can do this, and this is legal, and this is right for them, and we should do it. And so what we did to combat other stores of union busting is we tried to have conversations with them and we tried to get them to meet with us before Green Sage found out and before Green Sage met with them. And we started to get traction. The downtown location actually did end up citing cards. They had majority at one point. And the Merriman location was interested in having conversations with us. And then they got union busted. Union busted meaning that you no longer had a majority. They, the management managed to undermine or get into the heads of enough workers there that you no longer had a majority. Is that what you mean? We know officially union busting, meaning they went around to each store, had them close early so they could have one-on-one conversations with the workers and spread misinformation about unionizing. And we, I directly had conversations with the managers that were doing that, and I asked them, they, would, they gave us a list of questions to ask Teamsters, and I asked them, if I give you the answers from Teamsters, will you give them to the other stores? Because they don't have any, that's our union, Teamsters, they don't have any contact to Teamsters, so how are they supposed to find out the answers to these questions? And they said it wasn't their problem, and they would not allow me to distribute the correct list of the, answers. The owners said that, but couldn't you just do it anyway? We tried. (laughs) It's really hard to have communication within Green Sage because they've already had labor lawsuits and they've already had similar issues. And there's been word that they've people have tried to unionize Green Sage before. Randy Talley is also in. He's a co-owner of Earthfair, who also unionized before us, tried to unionize before us, and they got union busted. So they definitely had a little bit of knowledge before us trying to unionize, what it looked like, what it could mean, and so any word of it, they shut it down. So tell me, when did you have your ratification vote, and what was it like from then on? We had our election on March 31st. We won with 100% towards the union, and it was really incredible. (laughs) It's really cool to see. It was really gratifying to watch the votes be counted and just see it 100% all the way through. What did you gain from ratifying as a collective? Community, I would say, was like the biggest thing that we've gained from this is that all of us at one workplace came together and talked about our issues and talked about what we needed and we are making it happen. And we did it together. And that's what I think was the biggest part of it is the togetherness of it. Is there anything tangible in terms of pay, benefits, hours, other working conditions that came about from organizing? We start our actual contract bargaining later in the month, but 
from, I'd say we started this around January. So from January to now, we have implemented a recycling and compost program, which Green Sage said they were doing before and they weren't. And so we got it re-implemented. We got that done. We have now actual training structures. Those did not exist before. We have actual pay structures and we have scheduling systems and we've been getting it going. Jen, when Green Sage organized, now give us a macro view. Are there other restaurants, bars, breweries elsewhere in Asheville that are organized under a union collective? The only one that I know of is Crow and Quill. They are organized and they have a union. There aren't any other ones in Asheville at the moment, but they there are a few that we are talking to and are starting to form organizing committees. What did the victory at Green Sage do for your movement at large? It really helped because it gave people a sense of, oh, wow, a restaurant unionized? That's really cool. Like we've had a lot of people reach out to us and say, can you teach us how to do that too? So that's been really exciting. I remember years ago, there was a restaurant here, Blue Dream Curry, Mm -hmm. and they made a point at one point, we are going to pay a living wage Mm -hmm. and we're going to treat workers well, we're going to pay them this, you don't need to organize. And they had, uh, they felt, the owners felt that at a certain point, they had to back off of that, that it wasn't a business, they couldn't make it work in terms of business. When you look at that, does that augment like what is possible here in terms of benefits, what you can be fighting for when a restaurant of its own volition tried to pay a certain, what we regard a living wage. And at the time, I think it was 17 something an hour. Mm-hmm. Now living wage is considered $20 an hour. What are you asking for at large? Now in mindful of the rising costs here, but yet some businesses may not be able to make it if they pay a, quote, living wage, as evidenced by Blue Dream Curry. Are there universal things that you're trying to ask for among your collectives? Yeah, that is a good question because, you know, down here in the South, we have a whole different business model for restaurants than in other parts of the country. And just a side note, the living wages that Blue Dream was paying is not the reason, the whole reason behind why they had to close. It was also a lot of issues with rent there. It was really increasing and becoming out of their budget. And business had declined because tourism had declined a little bit and people weren't going out to eat as much. So it wasn't just solely because of what they were paying their employees. So that aside... There are business models, and what we want to do is work with employers. We want to have a big business owner roundtable where we have business owners who have a different model that they're able to use to pay their employees a living wage to provide paid sick days because there are restaurants that do that. They just, they, the ones that aren't able to do it, they just need to learn how to do it. And so we need to come together as a community and work together as employees, as business owners, community leaders to teach each other how it can be done, how it is done successfully in other states. Because I work in Seattle, Washington for about six months and made $12 an hour as a server and got an actual paycheck for the first time in my life as a server. So I know that it can work because it does work. So we just have to figure it out and educate ourselves. It sounds like you've done this research that's out there. Are you finding or at least hearing from peers in your industry locally that employers are wanting to work with their workforce in this way or are they resistant? Oh, no, absolutely. There are a lot of business owners on the F&B tribe, 
and I've talked to so many of them, and they do want to figure out how to make it work. They do want to, I've been telling them about this business owner roundtable that I want to get together, and they really are interested because they want to do it. They just don't know how. You talked about different models around pay, and you mentioned the victory you had for parking. What are some of the other things, some of the other bigger issues that you're wanting to organize your peers in this local industry around? Paid sick days. That's a huge one because, you know, the pandemic taught us that it matters if we go to work sick. Not only we get each other sick, we get customers sick. And that's just not cool. And even before the pandemic, we were doing that. So we want to organize people around getting paid time off and also fair scheduling because scheduling is a huge issue in this industry. A lot of people don't even get their schedules until maybe the day before the schedule starts for one thing. And another thing is the inconsistency of your schedule. So you might have 20 hours one week, 40 hours the next week, nine hours the next week. So you can't plan your life with not knowing how many hours you're going to work, not knowing what days you're going to have off. So those are the big issues. And affordable housing is another thing that we are working really hard on. How can a union work on affordable housing? These are things that your boss can't directly affect. So how does how do hundreds or thousands of workers collectively, even if you're all saying we need affordable housing, how do you collectively have a voice around that here? I'm organizing a tenants network, like a tenants union. I've got 75 people in it already and talking a lot. And there's overlap because most of us are service workers in this town and most of us are renters. So it's just a matter of finding out who can give us what we want um, uh, around affordable housing and then going to them and, and strategizing and organizing on how to approach them and how to collectively come together and demand that the people who have the power to do something to affect the affordable housing crisis do it. And the last thing around this part of it that I want to ask you is healthcare. One of the things that I think about is most times benefits are reserved for people who work 30 hours or more. And I would think, correct me if I'm wrong here, that most or many of the people in your industry are not Maybe they are pulling, they are qualifying, but give me some context of that is for people who may not pull those hours. Are you still trying to fight for health care coverage? No, no. We talked a long time about that and health care, like health insurance from restaurant owners, it doesn't seem feasible for the most part. And we really think that Medicare for all, universal health care, that's what we want to fight for. And that's what we want to get business owners behind, too, is so they don't have to worry about having to provide health insurance because that's incredibly expensive for them, too. And we are also working as we fight for universal health care. We're also talking to other insurance companies to figure out like a big insurance plan that we can have as a union to provide to our members as we fight for universal health care. Ariana, you're saying how you're in process still, that you ratified the contract in March. You're still in process of figuring out what the terms are going to be. Has there been any downside? Has there been any pushback? Has there any been, been any undercurrent of retribution or any negativity that has come f- from organizing? I would say not from organizing itself, but from how employers look at organizing. They definitely look at it immediately like it's something against them when it's really not it's just us having a say in our workplace and being able to have a part in that conversation about what should our conditions look like and what do we need 
So what are you thinking of is going to happen? What are you fighting for specifically going forward that hasn't been put in ink yet in your contract? So nothing really has been put in ink yet, but what we're fighting for is that we want, so Green Sage asks of us if we want to change our availability, we have to give them a two week notice in order to do that. And we would like it to be both ways for scheduling, because what Jen was saying is that, yeah, we have that issue of sometimes I have 20 hours, sometimes I have 40. I need to know what it's going to be two weeks before it's going to be there. I need to know what it will be. And that is something we're fighting for. What are some other big things or major cornerstones of why you organize that you're fighting for in this contract? Another really big one, I think this one will pertain to a lot of people in the restaurant industry, is when something is broken, having a strategy plan and a timeline on how long until it is fixed. Uh, That's a really big thing we've had because we've had things be broken for six months and we need those things. Those are like vital equipment to our work and to what we do, as well as that we want updated uniform policies that actually meet our industry standards. We are a cafe. We're not a corporate place, really. We're a very relaxed place, but Green Sage wants us to be almost office ready for work every day. (laughs) We're really not down for that. So that's another really big thing is, what's the word? Attire. Yes. The attire that you wear. That's interesting. I wouldn't have even thought that would be something would be in a union contract. But that sounds realistic that your things you're looking for. So are there dates ahead? Anything that's happening on a larger level, Jen, that you're organizing around in terms of info days? What's ahead? Yeah, we have been working on doing trainings just because we think that education around what your rights are and how to organize is the biggest key to success in this movement because we've been historically uneducated and miseducated down here in the South about our rights. So we just did a how to have structured organizing conversations and about 30 people showed up on Monday night. So that was amazing. And then on August 7th, through the Workers' Assembly, which I also lead, we are doing a Know Your Rights training with the NC Justice Center. And so we're going to be learning all about what our rights are as workers in North Carolina under state law and federal law, what our rights are around organizing and stuff like that. I'm really looking forward to that. It's an exciting one. And we're also going to be doing some trainings later this year about wage theft and how to keep track of what your wages are, how to file wage theft claims, what exactly wage theft is, because that's the biggest form of theft in the country. How can people who are in the industry or even outside of it dial into what you're doing? Are there websites, Facebook groups? Where where should people turn? If you just want to chat about industry stuff, you can join the Asheville F&B tribe. If you want to, you should follow Asheville Food and Beverage United on Instagram. We're always updating that to let people know what our next events are. And that's at AVLFBU. And then we are also part of the WNC Workers Assembly, which is a movement to organize the South in, in general. And you can find us also on Instagram and Facebook, the WNC Workers Assembly. And that's the main infrastructure where we educate ourselves. People, leaders from all kinds of worker-led organizations and unions come together once a month to strategize and educate ourselves and see how we can support each other's efforts. Ariana, what's your larger goals here? You've been at Green Stage for two years. You've got a union. Is this something you want to make a, a, a career in the food and beverage industry or Or what are you thinking? I would love to continue any kind of job organizing or just I plan to continue to 
help wherever I can and spread information and back up my people at Green Sage while we go through this contract negotiation process. And I'm excited for what's in the future. Our new First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com newsletter. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. I want to thank my guest today, Jen Hampton of Asheville Food and Beverage United and Ariana Lingenfeld, a chef at Green Sage South Asheville. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for the Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are available every Monday through Thursday morning. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. <laughs>